Tonight, the WAVE team would like to pay tribute to those who have been killed, affected or displaced due to the current events in Afghanistan. Most of us will never understand the sheer terror that many of these people have faced. If you would like to help support these refugees, please head to www.unrefugees.org.au to find out how. Coming up on The Wave. We hear firsthand from an Afghan resident of his experience of his new life under the Taliban. Japanese residents reflect on their thoughts on the success of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. No uni election campaigning on campus. After the Defend Democracy at Monash Group's petition attempted to reverse changes made to ban students from campaigning. This is The Wave by Mojo News. Here are your hosts for this episode, David Bonadio and Gab Hollow. Good evening. The rapidly evolving situation in Afghanistan has shocked all corners of the globe. The Taliban seized power in Afghanistan about three weeks ago, with many civilians questioning what is next. Mojo News reporter Siddharth chats to an Afghan resident on his experience so far. For privacy reasons, Mojo News has respected their confidentiality. The fundamentalist Islamic force secured all 34 provinces of Afghanistan on August 15th, following the United States' complete withdrawal of its forces nearly after 20 years. On 29th February 2020, the US and the Taliban signed a peace agreement with provinces including withdrawal of all American and NATO troops on various conditions, bringing peace back to Afghanistan and preventing Al-Qaeda from operating in areas under Taliban control. The two-decade-old conflict has claimed tens of thousands of lives, forcing millions to displace. Shortly after Taliban advancing across the country by capturing Kabul, President Ashraf Ghani left Afghanistan saying he wanted to avoid bloodshed and avert dreadful disaster of being hanged had he remained in office. The United States have spent nearly trillions of dollars in an attempt to remake Afghanistan after ousting the Taliban from ruling Afghanistan following the 9-11 tragedy. Moji News have accessed audio recordings of a Kabul-based student who doesn't want his identity to be revealed. He narrates on how the entire coup was staged and what it now means for the people of Afghanistan under the Taliban regime. Things are really weird, they are really confusing, everything has changed. In, in, in hours everything changed. And yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we're just waiting and hopefully either peace will come or there will be a serious war. They say we won't close down universities, we won't close down schools, we, we will allow the internet and we won't uh, disturb the growth and the things Afghanistan have achieved in these 20 years. They are saying this now, but they did the opposite thing. They will say this now in the beginning, that we'll do this and that, but when the right time comes, when they have uh, taken over all the country and have uh, proper power and people will be weak then, they will implement whatever they want. There will be no women rights, there will be no ch- children rights, there will be no proper universities, there will be no proper schools. In a matter of few hours, from seeing women and children happily roaming the streets to a sight of any woman in the city at all, the young Afghan student believes the entire coup was pre-planned. But things were different. Like you, you would see women roaming around in streets and t-shirts, wearing t-shirts and 
jeans women were roaming around freely men were men were also wearing jeans and uh, shorts and they were roaming around freely and here and there and everything was good everything was going well like previously everyone was happy and all of a sudden taliban came into the city they took every army vehicle there was every tank we had every plane we had they took every gun we had and when i went outside you would you i couldn't like find one single woman in the street there was no woman and even if you found a woman she was probably really old and she was also covered up she was covered up in burqas and everything and you you couldn't see like the woman you would see like a day before you won't see anything western in the city things are completely different now there were posters where posters had uh, woman model pictures in them and everything uh, you won't see a single poster now everyone took them down it's really weird you will see like taliban roaming around in the streets and the roads they they in their pickups now all of a sudden they are controlling our whole country our whole people uh, the whole population and everyone is scared of them many eligible students are in an attempt to reach out to international journalists hoping their action could relocate them to a different country and we are sending letters to every uh, every journalist we know outside the country to every a senator we know outside the country and hopefully they will take us out if not then we are staying here or maybe most of our students will be killed or most of us will uh, run away to the neighboring countries or any anywhere we can go this is sadat reporting for moja news What a touching story. You can only imagine just how hard it would be to be living in Afghanistan and not knowing what the future holds. Yeah, I agree. All the team at the Wave send our thoughts to those affected by the situation. The Australian government is being called to give permanent residency status to Afghan residents by Monash University's Gender Peace and Security Centre, urging them to reconsider their position. Karuna Balasubramanian reports. Monash Gender Peace and Security Center is now urging Prime Minister Scott Morrison to provide protection for Afghan citizens fleeing the country in a letter of support. The petition requests the Australian government to provide permanent residency status for Afghans currently in Australia to ensure their security. Monash Professor Jackweed Truss says priority must be given to those who have defended human rights in the public forum we want humanitarian evacuation we want emergency evacuation especially for those activists who have been public about their support for human rights and democracy um both of which are opposed by the taliban similar petitions have been issued by refugee advocates in australia asking the government to provide asylum schools and university organizer jenna williams gray from the asylum seeker research center says it is necessary to release refugees from Afghanistan who are currently in detention centers and we also know that at the moment for anyone seeking asylum any refugees in Australia the uh, pathways to family reunion is really difficult so um that also needs to be prioritized that people who are already here from Afghanistan need to be able to bring their families here safely the petitions have gained over 5000 signatures each karuna balasubramanian mergenius Up next, we have a feel-good story for you. Carolina Felton launched her pre-cycling business to create more sustainable grocery shopping options for customers. Inspired by a growing movement overseas, Mojo News reporter Natasha Shapova finds out Carolina's inspiration for starting up her business. 
A new way of shopping which avoids waste has opened two weeks ago, servicing the west of Melbourne. Precycle Pantry utilises a mobile shop van, encouraging customers to bring their own containers, while online deliveries are packed in compostable paper bags and glass bottles. The range includes household cleaning products and dry items, including coffee, grains and herbs. Founder of Precycle Pantry, Carolina Felton, launched her business after being inspired by similar companies in the UK. So the main goal, obviously, is to reduce the amount of plastic that goes to landfill. So that's, for me, what inspires me the most, that I know that for every order or every container that someone fills, it's already one less packaging and generally plastic that goes into the environment. According to the World Wildlife Fund, each Australian uses an average of 130 kilograms of plastic per year. Precycle Pantry customer Audrey Begeja says it's great to buy high-quality food while supporting a local business. It's so cost-effective. Like if you were to go to a supermarket, it would cost more than, you know, supporting someone like Precycle Pantry. With Victoria set to ban single-use plastics by February 2023, Precycle Pantry plans to expand to other suburbs across Melbourne. Natasha Shapova, Mojo News. Emerging musician Lil Nas has taken the world by storm with his new album, King's Disease the Second. After a 2020 full of activism and coming out as a member of the LGBT community, Mitch Turner gives us his roundup on the new album. Washed up former legends outstaying their welcome and trying to maintain relevance in a world that's moved on. And in 2018, beloved Brooklyn rapper Nas seemed destined to join this somewhat depressing list. After his much-typed Kanye West-produced comeback EP, Nazir, was released to mixed reviews, many suggested it was time for Nas to hang up the microphone and recede gracefully into our memories while he still could. However, his 2020 studio album, King's Disease, surpassed all expectations as he recaptured the timeless and untouchable Nas style that the hip-hop community has come to adore, culminating in his first Grammy win for Best Rap Album that same year. With King's Disease 2, Nas is picking up right where he left off. And if the goal of this album was to remind the world that he still has it, he absolutely succeeded. The album pulls no punches from the very start, with the opening track, The Pressure, kicking off with allusions to his enemy-turned-accomplice, Jay-Z. Nas goes on to describe in detail the trials and tribulations that come from having the weight of expectations of an entire community rest on his shoulders. Californian producer Hipboy, who has previously worked with the aforementioned West and Jay-Z to go along with Drake, Travis Scott, Beyonce, and a host of other A-listers, is at his absolute best on this project. His ability to complement the vocal style of the artists he's working with is unrivaled. And there's no better example of this than Nobody, a track featuring the enigmatic and elusive queen of hip-hop herself, Miss Lauren Hill, the silky smooth jazz-inspired instrumental transitions seamlessly from Nas's more abrasive and direct flow to Hill's comparatively mellow cadence. Equally impressive is Nas's collaboration with fellow rap kingpin Eminem to go along with the ever-underrated hip-hop duo EPMD on their track EPMD2. It's apparent from the outset that Nas wants to rise to the occasion, as he spits bars with a kind of ferocity that harks back to his peak in the early 90s. While Nas might have a cynical view of the rap game in its present form, he's certainly not above including some new school upstarts on this record. The track YKTV features the melodic, 
RB-infused flow that has become synonymous with Bronx Phenom Abui with the Hoodie, which Hipboy manages to mesh perfectly with the West Coast smoothness of Compton MC YG. Thematically, King's Disease 2 is laden with biblical and religious references. This imagery reaches its clear-cut crescendo on my Bible, as Nas divides the penultimate track on the album into three chapters to mimic the chapters of the Bible. The first and third chapters are certainly the most poignant, addressed to men and women respectively. Nas implores men and boys to look at one another as brothers rather than competitors, as allies against a world that in one way or another wants to mask the search for true meaning and purpose with an obsession over fame and fortune. To women, Nas gives thanks for the influence that they've had on his life while mourning how modern culture seems to content to leave women unprotected. This album represents another triumph in Nas's glittering career. Whether you're a fan of his delivery, lyricism, production value, or a combination of all the above and more, there is something here for you to enjoy. It is truly remarkable that 27 years and 13 studio albums since his legendary debut, Filmatic, Nas maintains a unique ability to capture the minds and ears of rap fans across the globe. Mitch Turner, Mojo News. Up next is our book review with Emma Calloway and Claudia Sullivan. They've delved into some incredible literature by Thomas Mayer and Rosie Smiler called Freedom Day, which saw 200 Indigenous Australians walk off the Wave Hill cattle station. This week we are reviewing a recently released children's book called Freedom Day, written by Thomas Mayer and Rosie Smiler, that tells the true story of Vincent Lingiari and the Wave Hill walk-off. But before we get into it, we're going to hear from Thomas to tell us a bit more about what this book entails. What was that sort of collaboration process like, working with Rosie to produce the book? Yeah, it was. It's difficult because of distance, uh, remote community, and um, and uh, you know, English for Rosie is like a, a third language um, for her, uh, and so uh, those were challenges. Um, but we worked together really well, and um, and we got it done. What does it mean to you to be able to um, go out and give this book back to that community and show them? Yeah, it's um, it's what Rosie. Uh, wanted, you know, and so that means a lot. She is an assistant teacher at the Kalkarindji School. So, uh, yeah, just last week we went to Kalkarindji and she read the book to the kids and, uh, yeah, they, they loved it, you know, because it's their story. It's about um, their people, their grandfather. What would you say to sort of the young people in Melbourne that will be listening to this um, who want to get involved and really want to help but obviously can't come up to Darwin and do those things? Well, I would ask them to um, to listen to what the Gurindji people are ultimately saying in this book through Rosie. Uh, that is that there's unfinished business and there is actual actions that people can take uh, and that is the Uluru Statement from the Heart, supporting the proposals and that, and in particular the voice. Because what Rosie describes in this book is that uh, while Vincent Lingiari and her people had won some land back, they were not able to affect the laws and policies that controlled how they lived on their land. And, and Vincent Lingiari famously said, you know, we want to live on our land our way. And so there's unfinished business in that regard. So, Claudia, what are your initial thoughts on this book? 
Uh, a really important story that we should know um, and a reminder to myself as a white woman, I have a role to play as an ally to listen to and do what I can to help. Um, I mean, books are all about giving people a voice and it's amazing that Thomas was able to work with Rosie to do that so wonderfully here. Like, it's really well done. I think it's a really beautifully told story uh, and beautifully illustrated by Samantha. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely loved the illustrations. Um, And fun fact, I was talking to Thomas um, in the interview and I said to him that my favourite page um, of illustration was the one where they've arrived at Waddy Creek and they're all sitting around the fire. I was just thought that was amazing. And he told me that that was actually his favourite page as well. So yeah, it was awesome. So what was your favourite part, do you think? Oh, I think... um... Up to the point in the story where, oh, spoilers alert, um, the author pauses to acknowledge that, that sometimes it's hard to hear the story, um, but it's important to know the truth. And I just thought that was really incredible. And I don't think I've ever heard anything like that in stories. And it was really true. Like she reaches out to almost every audience you could think of and says, you know, she asks, Um, how do you feel about this? And I just found that really powerful. Um, So it's five stars for me. I think it was just an amazingly told story. Nice. Yeah, I think if I could give it one critique, like if I really had to, I would say that I'd like to hear Rosie's true voice coming through a little bit more. I think that the way that it's written, um, it's obviously really trying to like reach a broad like audience but I think you can tell that it's been washed like over with proper English maybe a little bit too much Um, but I think this would have been like a very uh, difficult thing for Thomas and the editors and even Rosie to juggle uh, when telling the story so um, I can respect that they've tried to do it as well as they can but I'm gonna have to give it a 4.9 because of this (laughs) even though I really want to give it a five maybe I'll have to change it to five um (laughs) but no so Freedom Day is out or in all stores now for those who want to um go along and get a copy themselves if we've enticed you to have a read um next week we're going to be reviewing The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay which so far has been a wild read so I'm very excited to talk about it Up next is sport with Mojo News reporter Rashab. And with Tokyo 2020 Paralympics concluded on Sunday, how did the green and gold fare? The Paralympians did Australia proud, finishing eighth place with 21 gold medals, 29 silver medals, and 30 bronze medals. Now that the games are over, how are Japanese feeling about having hosted the Olympics? Dorothea Phyllis sat down with some Japanese citizens to find out their thoughts. Despite the success of the Tokyo Olympics, the citizens of Japan remained split on whether the Olympics was a good idea. President of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach, says the Olympics were the games of hope, solidarity and peace. And for the first time since the pandemic began, the entire world came together. However, The Olympics has reportedly caused a rift within Japan's society instead of uniting its people. While some Japanese were in favor of the Olympics, the majority was against it. Kaishi Obata, a high school student from Tokyo, was pro the Olympics. 
I was for the Olympics taking place in Tokyo because Japan had financial difficulties. I thought it's profitable. According to the Japan Times, a public poll indicated that over 80% of the Japanese were against the Olympics and there were numerous demonstrations. Some Japanese felt their health shouldn't be gambled on. Takao Hirota, a Japanese language teacher from Tokyo, opposed the Olympics. I was against in holding the Tokyo Olympic Games this time in Tokyo. I have the health problem, so I was worried about the increasing spreads of COVID-19 cases as a result. On June the 1st, less than 1% of the Japanese were vaccinated with two shots. But the vaccine rollout accelerated since then, and now over 70% of the Japanese had at least one shot. I did it the first time in mid July and the second one are in August. Vaccines made people feel safer, but during the Olympics, COVID cases increased fivefold with alarming news of COVID transmission among foreign athletes. Japan has seen daily COVID cases surpassing 15,000, and the public healthcare system on the verge of collapse. However, once the Olympics started and the Japanese athletes kept winning medals, 58 in total, the Japanese public, filled with pride, started to warm up to the Olympics. It was fun to watch on TV. I watched table tennis. My favorite players, Ito and Mitani, got gold medals. Atsushi Wakamatsu, a journalist from Tokyo, enjoyed the opening ceremony the most. My highlight is the women's 55-kilogram wrestling ceremony. Icho, who is a four-time Olympic gold medalist, appeared wearing Japanese kimono. In the end, over 50% of the Japanese thought that the Olympics was a good thing. I think it was successful, uh, more successful than expected. Tokyo gave the athlete a good venue for them to show their achievement and produce a good result. According to the national opinion poll taken on the last day of the Olympics, the approval rating of the Prime Minister Suga cabinet was merely 28%, the lowest ever. So it looks that the Japanese approve of sportsmanship, achievements, and the excellence of the athletes, but not of the politics and corruption behind the Olympics. Mr. Wakamatsu praises the Australian women's softball team for their discipline and sacrifices in the name of sportsmanship. In this Tokyo Olympic, I was very much impressed by the Australian female softball team. They are moving around, only limited, very stressful, but we have not heard any complaints from them. Why? Because they are professionals. Dorothea Phyllis, Mojo News. It's a footy final season for the NRL and AFL, and it's heating up. This Friday, we'll see Melbourne Storm clash with Warringah Seagulls at Sunshine Coast Stadium. The NRL is warning those purchasing tickets for the game to purchase only from Ticketing website. To AFL now. The second week of the AFL 2021 final series is gearing up to be an exciting one for sure. The six final AFL teams will battle it out for a spot in the preliminary finals. Geelong will face Del GWS on Friday night in an epic blockbuster match. GWS has surprised many fans by gaining an entry into the next stage of the finals by one point. Ooh, that was close. 
नेक्स्ट ऑन सैटरडे अनादर बिग ब्लॉक बस्टर शो डाउन बिटवीन ब्रिजबिन लाइन्स एंड वेस्टर्न बुलडॉक्स आई कैन नॉट वेट टू सी वट हैपन्स नेक्स्ट इन दिस एक्साइटिंग एंड ऑफ द सीजन एंड दैट्स ऑल फ्रॉम मी फॉर दिस वीक स्पोर्ट यू कैन कैच मोर स्पोर्ट्स डिस्कशन ऑन द स्पोर्टिंग पोस्ट एट पी एम लाइव टूमारो नाइट ऑन मोजो न्यूज सोशल पेजेस बैक यू डेविड एंड गैब Students have been left outraged after the Monash Student Association dismissed a petition demanding the student council scrap regulations prohibiting on-campus campaigning in the 2021 student elections. Defend Democracy Monash plans to challenge the MSA's decision with the student general meeting on the 16th of September. Here's Emma Callaway with the rundown. A petition created by the Defend Democracy at Monash group has received over 800 student signatures and has been submitted at the student council meeting as a motion on August 19. The motion is to prompt a student general meeting to vote on reversing regulation changes that prevent students from campaigning on campus. However, the motion has been quickly dismissed by MSA President Marnie O'Connell, who says newly founded legal advice has deemed it unlawful and invalid. Barrister Tony Lang informed the decision stating it is unlawful to change the rules of an already commenced election, making any vote on the matter invalid. In a statement provided to Monash News, Ms O'Connell says this is not a matter for debate, it was a black and white matter of law. Defend Democracy at Monash campaign organizer Kelly Shvetkova says the lack of justification behind the legal advice prompted the negative reaction of students. I would love to um, see this advice released. That's one of the things that I think has been missing throughout quite a lot of this process is more public kind of answering of these questions on the part of the MSA. Monash University student Aisha Hodery is disappointed to see student concerns being ignored by the student council. I'm a first year and it's pretty just like it's just insane. This student union is supposed to be the body you can go to to express your concern. And first they've actually the student union has attacked the rights of students by passing those regulations regarding the elections in the first place. And when you try to contest them on that, the fact that they will go out of their way to silence you is just ridiculous. Ms. Shvetkova said the Defend Democracy at Monash campaign will continue to fight for students' rights to campaign on campus in student elections. Emma Kelloway, Mojo News. It's time for this week's politics wrap with Karuna Belasu Romanian. It looks like Matthew Guy is set to become the Victorian opposition leader. Isn't that right, Karuna? That's right, Gab. There has been a bit of shuffle in the Liberal Party as leader of the opposition Michael O'Brien has been shafted for former leader Matthew Guy. Guy led the party from 2014 until the 2018 election before being replaced by O'Brien. The Liberal Party hopes Guy will increase their chances at winning the Victorian state election with Guy already promising to offer reprieve for the Labour Party's alleged COVID-19 scare tactics. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has come under fire after receiving a travel exemption to return to Sydney for Father's Day over the weekend despite the heavy travel restrictions requiring anyone who has traveled to Sydney to get a covid test and isolate returning to Canberra for 14 days. The Prime Minister has called criticizers of throwing a cheap shot. A 17-year-old was announced to be on a ventilator in ICU on Tuesday with a total of 110 people in hospital. COVID-19 case numbers are still exceptionally high with average of 170 cases a day. 
back to your David and Gab. It's just astonishing, isn't it, just how quickly this variant is spreading and the amount of young people hospitalised. Yeah, it's really eye-opening. We all need to be super vigilant when we go out for essentials. Melissa Hong is back for another week to share her musical talent with us. Performing her whole rendition of Billie Eilish's Your Power, it's Melissa Hong.
Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Wave. You can subscribe to us through Mojo News on YouTube, Spotify, and all the other places you get your podcasts. Don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and head to mojonews.com.au to stay up to date with all the latest digital, radio, and TV stories coming out of our publication. This has been The Wave. Thank you for your company. Good night.